a man walked into the elevator and he was dressed very sharply in a suit, but I don't think he worked in the hospital. And he, he just looked at me and said, are you a medical student? I said, yes. And he said, what are you going into? I said, I'm not sure yet. And the elevator stopped and the doors opened and he walked out and then... Hey everyone, Peter here with episode 125 of the Assyrian Podcast, and I am so excited about today's episode with Dr. O'Hara Ivaz. O'Hara is a proud Assyrian and a board-certified dermatologist practicing in Beverly Hills, California. She completed a combined internal medicine and dermatology residency program at Georgetown University in Washington, D.C., and is now double board certified in both dermatology and internal medicine. She has lectured nationally, including invitations to speak at the National Institutes of Health and internationally, and has also authored several articles and peer-reviewed journals. In this interview, you'll learn about her journey through medical school and how she came about to study dermatology. You'll learn about her parents' encouragement from an early age, the importance of a Syrian connection and community, how dermatology requires her to pay the closest attention to her patients, and that time she pulled a parasite from a skull. Now, if you can stomach it, check out her Instagram post from July 13th. We also got into art and my personal favorite topic when I asked her to recall her earliest memory. Check her out on Instagram at oharaivaz.md, O-H-A-R-A-A-I-V-A-Z.md. Before we get into this week's interview, Assyrian Podcast Programming is made possible by Tony Caligarakis and the injury lawyers of Illinois and New York. If you know anyone that has been in a serious accident, please reach out to Tony Caligarakis. Tony has been recognized as a top 40 lawyer and a rising star by Super Lawyers Publication and has obtained multiple multi-million dollar awards. Tony can be reached at InjuryRights.com or 847-982-9516. And now, here's O'Hara. O'Hara, welcome to the Assyrian Podcast. It's such a pleasure to have you on. But I want you to introduce yourself. Who is O'Hara in one sentence? Sure. So I think a lot of people will see me as Dr. O'Hara, the young, successful professional. Uh, I think there is a little bit more to it than that. I, In one sentence, I would say I'm probably a very positive and energetic, full of life person. So tell me the story behind your name. So I'm named after Scarlett O'Hara from Gone with the Wind. My dad watched the movie and said he would name his first daughter O'Hara. So that's that's where it's from. And so how was it growing up with a unique name? It was interesting. I wasn't crazy about it at first. I think it brought up a lot of questions. People thought I was Irish or they would expect me to be Irish and then they would see me and think, okay, she's obviously not Irish. Now I'm very happy to have a unique name because it's unique. It's interesting. It's yeah. nice to be a, a little bit different. There's a story. Whenever there's a story behind it, I feel as though, especially if you're someone who likes to share then I think a story just makes your name even more unique. Exactly. Tell me about growing up. Where did you grow up? Tell me a little bit about the the early years. You know, if you have, I like to ask most of my guests, what's your first memory? That's a great question. Uh, so I grew up in Palos Verdes, California. It's a small coastal city in Southern California. My earliest memory, I don't know that I've ever thought about my earliest memory. I do remember being very small, maybe I was four years old, and my mom had gone to the hospital to deliver my brother. And I remember this feeling of melancholy and, and sadness, and maybe the best way to describe it is libachlusta, like I really, really missed my mom. That's maybe one memory that mm. always stands out to me from my childhood. Yeah. What was it that, what were you yearning for? I mean, I felt isolated. I mean, as a four-year-old, your mom is your lifeline. She's your your friend. Your your the only person you feel connected to. I think maybe outside of your dad. And I didn't have her, and it was 
probably one of the only times I had been away from her. And I think it's my earliest memory of sadness. Like a tr- like I felt like just lost without her. I don't think I've actually spoken this out loud before. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> so tell me about growing up. Yes. So growing up, I was very shy and timid. I went to Catholic school and it was a class of 30 and they were all Irish and Italian kids. And here's O'Hara, this Middle Eastern girl with a unibrow, a little bit more fuzz on her legs than she wanted. And um, I just felt kind of out of place and, and shy. And I think that never really fully leaves a person, you know? I really liked reading a lot. Actually, my brother and sister did as well. And we were at the library all the time. I remember going into the library with an empty bag and coming out barely being able to hold the bag. And I would read 30 books maybe in a week or two weeks. I just loved reading that much. And sometimes after dinner, uh, we were supposed to be studying. And I know my sister and I would sit in the family room and we would hold a big history textbook and then hide a novel in front of it just to be able to keep reading our books. I mean, we were that into reading. Those are some of my, I think, qualities as a child. Was it your parents doing and encouraging reading? Or was it something that you and your siblings just gravitated to? I think we just gravitated to it. My mom put us in a lot of different activities. We played sports, we did tennis, we went to art camps, karate class. So we did a lot, and re- going to the library was just another activity, but it, I think getting lost in the worlds that novels gave you was just very exciting to me. So child, you're timid, you're yes, shy. Yes, yes. How do you break out of that, that shell as a teenager or later on in your adult life? I was later on. In college, probably, I finally came out of my shell. I felt independent and I was working towards something. I was working towards a degree and meeting different people. And um, I think that's sort of where I started to open up and blossom. I sought the help of three individuals to procure the set of questions that I have for you. I've added a few, but (laughs) I I think, no, I'm certain that these three people know you or at some point in your life have been kind of been there with you or experienced you. Okay. Tell me about the importance of your family and being a Syrian. Yes. So my fam, they're both very important to me. I think as I've gotten older, what I've realized is that you are rich beyond measure if you have your health and if you have a family that you care about and they care about you. You can't ask for more from the world. And being a Syrian is also such a special special thing. We have this warmth and vibrance in our culture that I think not a lot of other cultures give you. And on top of that, I think Nora Lacey said it best at convention last year. She said, we have the DNA of some really remarkable people. We are in some way their ancestors, the ancestors of people who created the first library. And I think that we can really do great things if we put our mind to it. And I think we're in a little bit of, like we're experiencing a paradigm shift right now with you know, the celebration of art and culture and even this year in podcast. I mean, we're doing really great things as an Assyrian nation now. So I'm, I'm excited for the future of Assyrians. And Assyrians and family are connected, right? So Assyrians emphasize family. And I think that's a part of the beauty of our culture is we make it so that we always feel like we have a family and our family has our back. Yeah. So it's, it's all connected. It's beautiful. Yeah. And I've noticed, you know, when a single adult or, you know, a young married couple moves Mm -hmm. to an area where there aren't any Syrians, I think the first thing that they do is seek out you know, the, the possibility, are there other Syrians around here? Because always. there's always that, although maybe these two people don't know each other, but the common ground, the common denominator being a Syrian, there's that connection, like you've known this person mm-hmm. for your whole life. I mean, we I experienced that, not only is this something that we have thought 
this only happens in the east, but even, it's come over with us to the west. Mm -hmm. You know, that kind of hospitality, that connection. When did you realize that you wanted to attend medical school? Uh, I realized when I was in college, actually. So I grew up not really knowing what I wanted to do. I didn't have much direction, to be honest. I think for a long time when I was younger, I would... I would look at cashiers kind of pushing buttons at the supermarket. You know, cash registers back then were pretty antiquated. And I just loved this idea of pushing buttons as a career. And I always wanted to be a, a cashier. And then I got to college and I was interested in psychology. I took a psychology class in high school and I liked it. So I thought maybe I'll do psychology. And one of the requirements in um, undergrad to pursue a career in psychology was to gen uh, take a genetics course. And I did. And I thought the human body was just fascinating. Like a little blip in your DNA can cause cancer. A blip somewhere else can give you a very rare disease where your arms and legs are flailing around and you have no control over them. I thought that was fascinating. And so I didn't think much further about it. I just said, I'm going to go to med school and learn about the human body and how it works. So that's how it happened. Where did you do undergrad? I was at UC Irvine. So you were close to home. I was about an hour away from home. Did you go back often, like weekends or? I have family in Orange County, which is where Irvine is. So I would probably see some member of my family once a week, whether it was my aunts or grandparents in Orange County or going back home to visit my parents. One of my closest friends, Joe Denavi, has gone through medical school. Uh -huh. uh, I even drove him to his, his interview. Uh, and I still remember that day fondly, but and he, I would always ask him about his experience, you know, from day one. Mm -hmm. And so what I want to ask you is, how was your experience throughout medical school? How did you stay disciplined? Medical school is four years. And the first two years, you're mostly in the classroom. And then you take a big exam between your second and third year. And your third and fourth year, you're in the hospital. You're functioning as a member of a group who takes care of patients. So the first two years were extremely challenging. I spent all day either in the classroom or in the library. I lived in a house with three other girls who were med students with me at Georgetown. So in that sense, I had a good social group, but we were always just studying. Can you give the listeners context as yes. to where Georgetown is? Georgetown is uh, an area in Washington, DC. So the first two years were honestly miserable. We didn't have many breaks. I missed a lot of weddings. I missed a lot of engagement parties, vacations, because I was studying all the time. And we would have a cluster of exams. And then my classmates and I would go out maybe for a weekend. And then that's it. Then you're back to studying. So I spent two years that way. The last two years, I found much more fun. It was nice to be part of a group and finally taking the skills you learned in the classroom to take care of patients. That's kind of what I had been waiting to do. And it's also very interesting being in a hospital where everybody's young. I mean, there's medical students and residents and everybody's in their 20s and 30s. While it's a very serious environment, it's also kind of social because you're with these young people all day long. So to me, it was a much more fun environment. You're working hard, but you're also surrounded by like-minded people um, and you're all working towards the same goal. During the first two years, mm -hmm. how did you overcome adversity or did you ever question yourself? Like, will I be able to get through this? I mean, what was your mindset as you came across uh, a hurdle? School was never very hard for me through high school and college. I did well, and I I don't think I worked very hard, but it, it came to me. And when I got to medical school, it was a very, very challenging experience, and I had never faced that before, in school at least. And so I remember there was one point in the middle of my first year that I called home crying, and I said, I don't think I can do this. I think... I think I want to quit. This is too hard because it was, I mean, imagine being confined in a room or in a library 10 hours a day, seven days a week for months on end. It's exhausting. Um, it was my family that gave me strength. My parents pushed me to, 
to stick with it. There's a light at the end of the tunnel. It's two years of your life. You can do it. Just get through it. But it was very, very hard. Did your parents ever pressure you into attending medical school? Or how was, what was their outlook in terms of where they wanted you to be career-wise? They never pressured me. My dad said education's very important, but he never said go to go and get this type of education. He just said, make sure you study and you are an educated individual. And my mom always just said, you can be whatever you want to be, just be the best at what you do. So there was never a push towards any specific field. I sort of found my way through interest. There was never a push. Tell me about dermatology. How did you end up being a dermatologist? Yes, so it's kind of a fun story. You are supposed to decide what field you want to go into by the end of your third year of med school. You don't experience every rotation in your third year. You know, you do some very general ones, pediatrics, medicine, surgery, and maybe a few specialties like ER or neurology. I reached the end of my third year and I thought to myself, oh God, what am I going to do? I don't really like anything. And I remember I was in a urology rotation at the time and one doctor we were he was operating on someone we were in the operating room and he just looked at me and said what are you going to go into and I said I'm not really sure he said you should try derm and I said huh that's funny because I actually haven't had any exposure to derm and then it might have been a couple days later that I was in an elevator in the same hospital and I was wearing a, a white coat that was short that represents that you're a medical student and a a man walked into the elevator and he was dressed very sharply in a suit, but I don't think he worked in the hospital. And he he just looked at me and said, are you a medical student? I said, yes. And he said, what are you going into? I said, I'm not sure yet. And the elevator stopped and the doors opened and he walked out. And then I distinctly remember him turning back around and looking at me and saying, you should do derm. And so I said, huh, that's odd. Two people that I don't know have both suggested it. Maybe I'll try it. So the first rotation of my fourth year, I enrolled for for dermatology. And in the first day, I fell in love with it. It was a there was a mystery behind every door, and it was a mystery you could see because it's all on the skin. So I thought it was fascinating. So what do dermatologists specialize in? Like what is their specialty? We specialize in skin, nails, and hair. So anything that goes wrong with any three of those organs we can help with. What's one thing you wish you had known when you began your career? It's not necessarily a deterrent, but it was something I didn't know, and that is that a dermatologist is actually half dermatologist and half therapist. You know, a lot of patients come to me for total body skin examinations, so I'm checking them for moles and skin cancers, and it's a kind of uncomfortable exam because it's very thorough. It lasts five or 10 minutes and they're completely undressed while I'm examining them. So I tend to make small talk with them to kind of try to relax the mood of the room. And it's just amazing how much detail people will get into about their private lives. So I will hear about their extramarital affairs, their history of child abuse, their, I mean, you name it, the most intimate details of their life come out. And then I mean they're standing right there naked essentially so they're in Essentially <laughs> it is I guess and then they just take it to another level. And um I swear they come back and it's not really to talk about their skin it's more to follow up with the issues that we had talked about during our initial meeting. So truly I'm I'm like a therapist which is I mean I feel very privileged to be able to help them with their problems. It's nice because you feel like you're treating the whole person, not just one aspect of them. Do you think this applies to all doctors or is this something that is specific to your cohort of dermatologists or is this you? I really think it's dermatologists in general. I do wonder if a part of it is me because I do tend to be more soft-spoken and I'm a a listener. And so people do, even outside of the office, tend to open up to me. But a lot of dermatologists do share that sentiment. What are some crazy things you've seen in the field? I think you posted a video of you pulling a parasite out of someone's skull or a photo of of doing that. 
Yes. So that was a pretty interesting story. Um, this man came to me actually at the very beginning of the lockdown. And I was seeing, at that point, I was seeing patients once a week, maybe two or three patients a day. I mean, nobody was coming into the office. And this man um, was put on my schedule. And when I checked the schedule, there's a little blurb next to their name that says why they're coming in. And it said, came from the Amazon, now has draining nodule on scalp. And draining nodule means there's a bump on the scalp that's oozing some liquid. And so I said, I know what this is. I'm going to record it because it's going to be amazing. Did you seek his permission to record? Of course, I always do. I can never record them or put it on social media without their permission. Is that a formal process, like to seek their permission or is this asking? I ask and they have to sign some documents. So the story is that he had gone to the Amazon for a a spiritual experience and he went with a group of people and they stayed for a week in the Amazon. I mean, not at a hotel. They were in tents there. And uh, he came back and a month later he found this bump on his scalp and it was painful. And he said, he's like, I feel like there's something moving around in there. So he went to two physician's assistants. So they were physician's assistants working in a dermatology office. um, And they had given him antibiotics and injected the spot and it never healed. So he came to me for a third opinion. I had read this in my textbooks and I had always wanted to see it. It's called a bot fly and they're really common in the Amazon. And basically there's eggs that are on some insect like a mosquito or something and the mosquito lands on the person the egg drops off the mosquito and and burrows into the skin and this egg opens and grows into a parasite and so that's what this guy had in his scalp I numbed him I opened it up and I pulled it out of his scalp he was such a good sport he was very open. He wanted to see it. He was excited about it, where I think any other human would have probably fainted at the thought. Uh, so that was a pretty, pretty cool uh, patient I had. What is the size of the, the bot fly? Yeah, the bot fly was probably at that point, I would say a centimeter and a half. And the parasite that you pulled out? The parasite is the bot fly. Okay, okay. About a centimeter and a half. It was alive and it was wriggling when I pulled it out. What did you do with it afterwards? <laughs> I sh- he asked to see it, so I showed it to him, and then I put it in a specimen bottle, and I sent it to the lab to be certain that that's what it was. I can't take something off of someone and just throw it away. Legally, it has to go to the lab to be analyzed. Where do you practice? I practice in Beverly Hills, California. How's that? It's interesting. We see a range of clientele. Some celebrities come into the office, so it's it's an interesting place to practice. I trained in a very destitute hospital. So the hospital had very poor, very sick patients, a lot of HIV and hepatitis and people from other countries. So I was used to one way of practicing and you come to Beverly Hills and it's a different problem set, but I enjoy it very much. Where did you practice before? This is my first job, Mm -hmm. but I trained in Washington, D.C. Okay. Mm -hmm. This is where you saw kind of the other end of the spectrum? Yes. Yes. What advice would you give someone wanting to pursue a career similar to yours? Yeah. So medicine is a very tough field. It requires a lot of sacrifices. And after undergraduate, I was in medical school for four years and my residency was five years. And some people do residency for three years, other people do it for seven. So it's a big chunk of your life that's dedicated to it. So you want to make sure that you are doing it for the right reasons and you have a passion for it. And I think it's really hard for somebody in their late teens, early 20s to figure that out. So I always say, talk to as many doctors as you can, ask questions, make sure you ask doctors who are in different stages of their career, so young, old, ask them if they're happy, ask them what they regret, ask them what their lifestyle is like, how much free time do they have, and really try to figure out what life will be like as a physician. Knowledge is power. So if you have the knowledge and know how these doctors live, how they practice, who they deal with, it might help 
somebody considering medicine make the right decision. What are some common myths about your profession or field that you want to debunk? Okay, there's two. Only two? <laughs> two that I'll get At into today. <laughs> yes. I'm open to getting into more. Yeah, well, let's start with these. So one is that only people with white skin can get skin cancer. It's not true. People who have olive skin like ours can get skin cancer and people with dark skin. I have a lot of black patients who have had skin cancer as well. You know, I think back to the pools at convention and people with these terrible sunburns on their backs and shoulders, please wear sunscreen because Assyrians can get skin cancer too. So that's one. What's the recommended SPF? SPF 50 or above. Reapply every two hours, especially if you're sweating or getting wet. And uh, make sure to cover your ears and your face with a cap. So uh, that's one. And then two is that I think people think dermatologists have this like very foo-foo, shoo-shoo kind of career. It's all about beauty and Botox, but it's not that way. I mean, we were trained in complex medical dermatology as well. So one example is that I had a woman come to me, actually her husband brought her for a very itchy rash. And as I was asking her about her rash, I noticed she was kind of confused. She Where wasn't was the rash? All over, head to toe. And she was confused when I was asking her about the history of the rash. I did a little bit of blood work and I called her husband the next day and I said, her liver enzymes are through the roof. You have to get her to the hospital right away. So he did and I called to check in and a day later and she was on the list for a liver transplant. So, I mean, we can make a really big difference in people's lives. It's not all about fillers and lasers. There's a lot of a lot of skin manifestations of internal disease that we are trained to see. No other myths that you want to debunk? Is there something you have on your mind? No. no. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I wanted to give you the open floor. Okay. Yeah. Those are the big ones. Is skin cancer genetic or is it just limiting time outdoors? Like where is that happy medium for folks that like the sun? I love the sun, personally yeah. speaking. So. so skin cancer is complex. Part of it, yes, is genetics. A big part of it is sun exposure. And then there's something in between too that we don't quite understand yet. So you have to be responsible about sun exposure. I tell my patients, I want you to live. You should be out hiking, playing tennis, go to the beach, go on resort vacations. Just be smart about it. So wear your sunscreen, wear sun protective clothing, wear hats. The goal should not be to get a tan and you can get a little bit of color even when you're wearing sunscreen. Just be smart about it. Prevent blistering sunscreen, uh, excuse me, blistering uh, sunburns and stay covered. Years ago, I heard that Botox helps folks who suffer with migraines. That's true. How does that, where, where do those two kind of correlate? What's the nexus between the two? I don't do Botox for migraines, but it does help. Botox is a muscle relaxer. Some people get tension headaches, which is caused by basically too much tension and stress in the muscles that are on the scalp or in the neck or shoulders, or believe it or not, even in the jawline. So any sort of tension or clenching can lead to headaches. So Botox is injected by neurologists for migraines, basically to relieve the tension in those muscles because it relaxes the muscles. Mm -hmm. I take good care of my skin. Okay. At least I think I do. You have great skin. Thank you. Yeah. What do what can folks out there focus on in terms of food consumption, liquid consumption? What are some of those foods or drinks that really help? So I think that keeping your body healthy is important for your skin health. And how do you keep your body healthy? You drink a lot of water, you limit alcohol and caffeine consumption. And you make sure your diet is full of fruits and vegetables, which are high in antioxidants. So our skin and our body need antioxidants to fight off the effects of pollution, stress, and aging. As far as what you're ingesting internally, a diet high in antioxidants is important. The other side of it is external, meaning what do you put on your skin to help with your skin. The most simple regimen I would say for somebody who's looking to optimize their skin health is a vitamin C serum in the morning, 
a moisturizer with sunscreen over top of the vitamin C serum. And for every day, I recommend SPF 30. And then in the evening, I love a retinol or retin-A. It's a vitamin A derivative. It's a topical that's used to treat acne, but it's actually the only thing that's proven to help with fine lines and wrinkles. So this is a very basic skincare regimen. Of course, you should always talk to your physician before going on a regimen, especially if there's pregnancy or breastfeeding or other medical issues. And it can get much more complicated than that if you want it to. There's always the addition of Botox or peels or fillers or lasers. But again, that's depends on the individual. You've been published many times and you've given lectures in your field. Can you please expand on some of those, some notable ones? Sure. I have published eight papers now. The last one actually I did with my younger brother, Maradine, who's a medical student at George Washington. And so oftentimes I would encounter an interesting case, whether it was in my training or as a medical student or at my job. And there was something to learn from every interesting case I saw. And and typically physicians will publish those cases as learning points for other practitioners in their field. Probably the most notable one I did was when I did a one-month rotation at the NIH, which is the National Institutes of Health in Bethesda, Maryland. And I did that as part of my training at Georgetown. And there is a rare genetic syndrome called Berthog-Dubé syndrome. And the NIH had a special cohort of these patients, and we wrote up some interesting findings that we found in a series of those patients. That was probably my most special publication. Can you go into the syndrome? So Berthog-Dubé syndrome is a a rare genetic condition, and these patients get uh, very classic growths on the skin. There are these white bumps called fibrofolliculomas. With that, they also get cysts in their lungs that can pop and cause, uh, it's really a pulmonary emergency, these patients can't breathe. And people who have this syndrome have an increased risk of kidney cancer. So it's a very important syndrome to recognize in patients when they come in with these white bumps, because if they have the syndrome, they need aggressive screening to prevent them or at least detect kidney cancer. At the NIH, when we would see these patients, we found a new type of growth that characterized the syndrome, which was actually, uh, it it looked like blackheads on the skin. So these blackheads were actually fibrofolliculomas that looked different than they normally did. So we basically added a new diagnostic criteria to that syndrome. What are the best resources that have helped you along your journey into dermatology and now as you practice? I would say that my parents have been the most influential resource for me because they really dedicated their lives to me and to my siblings. I look at them like a treasure box filled with pearls, like pearls of wisdom, pearls of hope, pearls of encouragement, of self-reliance. They have given me a lot of tools that I think have helped me be the best version of myself. For that, I'm forever grateful. I feel truly blessed to have the parents I have. Would you say that your job is high demanding? It is high demanding. In dermatology, we're expected to see a lot of patients. So sometimes I see upwards of 30 patients a day. That's 120 patients a week. That's almost 500 patients a month. And imagine you see all these patients, you have to write notes after you see them, send in their prescriptions deal with the insurance companies that are rejecting their medications, answer their emails, call back biopsy results, and answer your staff's questions in between all of this. So my days are very hectic. I'm a multitasker. I'm usually doing more than one thing. And while doing all of this, you are truly caring for a human being who's looking at you and is dependent on you to help them. So that's the part where you have to slow down and really take your time while there's all this movement and hustle and bustle around you. So in that sense, yes, it's very demanding. How do you disconnect and how do you find respite after work? I'm a very social person. So for me, disconnecting is 
going and being with other people. So I, I'm a huge foodie. I love food. So I'm often after work out for dinner with friends. That's one way. There is that 10% of me that needs alone time to recharge. And so that those times I'm either baking or reading a book or in bed watching a movie. Who are the three people who have been most influential to you? My parents and a mentor that I had in medical school and residency. My dad emphasized education a lot and he's somebody I looked up to because he went through a lot of hardships when he was growing up in Iran. Despite those hardships, he was very dedicated and made it to a high level in his career. He always tells us that he used to study at nighttime under a street lamp and just kind of walk up and down the street and use the street lamps for light to get out of the house and not be distracted. And it was like when he was fed up with studying but needed to, he would go and just spend hours under a street lamp reading at nighttime. To me, that's somebody who is so, so, so dedicated. And then he came to the US, he went to Harvard to do a fellowship And so, you know, for somebody who didn't speak the language very well, he overcame a lot to be successful. And I've had it easy. I grew up here. I speak the language. I've I've assimilated for the most part into this culture. So to see his struggles, I think, has pushed me to work hard. I've had no excuse not to work hard. And he always emphasized education and making the best of myself. And my mother, she emphasizes self-reliance and independence in a woman. She taught me never to rely on anybody else. And I think that's a very important quality to have. And I'm, I'm proud to embody that. Another big influence on me was a mentor that I met in my fourth year during my dermatology rotation, Dr. Scott Norton. He's a dermatologist. He was in the military for many years. He actually served as a White House dermatologist for many presidents, and he's just an amazing person. He taught me curiosity. He taught me about the power of observation, that you can deduce a lot from a person just by looking at what they bring with them to the office or the way they behave or how their nails are or what they're wearing. Give me an example, like what they brought to the office. Like, uh... So one example was um, I walked in with him into a patient's room and the patient had a magazine sitting on the table and it was a journal called Science that usually physicians don't read. Usually scientists like PhDs read that. So he said, O'Hara, what do you think this person does for work? Without even really addressing why the patient was there, what the reason for their visit was. And so I said, I think he's probably a scientist because he has this journal science with him. So So that's one example. People's accessories can teach you about them if you pay attention so he taught me a lot about observation about curiosity about how to keep digging when you don't know the answer or you don't know the person's diagnosis he taught me the art of medicine really because it is an art talking to people making them feel comfortable even when you don't know what's going on explaining how you're going to figure it out i think makes people really comfortable and so i always strive to be to be like him. What is it about nails that you that would say something about a patient? Like what are you looking for in the observation? So there are some specific nail findings that you will see in nervous people. There's some tics that people have that make it so that they're constantly picking at a thumbnail in a very specific direction. It's called a habit tick deformity. So that can be a clue that this person has high anxiety and maybe they need a little bit more reassurance during the visit. Or if their nails are long or if there's a little bit of dirt underneath them, that might tell you that they're going through financial hardship. Maybe they're living on the street, but they don't want to tell you that they are because there's pride. And if they are living on the street, those people have a whole host of other dermatologic issues that you may have to address. If you weren't a dermatologist, what would you be doing otherwise? I think I 
would have gone to culinary school and been a pastry chef somewhere or maybe had my own bakery. So you love baking? I really love it. You have a sweet tooth. A big sweet tooth. <laughs> Thankfully, I work out a lot, so, so there's a good balance. So you graciously hosted me for this interview in your house, and I notice a lot of art. What in art inspires you? I think there's a lot in art that can inspire you. Some paintings or some photos evoke a memory that's important to you or symbolic to you. Some art is shocking, and I think sometimes people expect me to be a certain way because I'm a physician, maybe more on the conservative side, so I like art that's a little bit daring because it's unexpected. And then some things are just fun and they, they're conversation starters. And some art makes you think, how could anybody have ever thought to put this on paper? And so I think there's so much beauty in the world, in music, in art, and it can evoke so much in a person. So I have art from all over the place and all types of different art in my house. And I, I want to keep collecting art. When you lived in D.C., there was an Assyrian group. Yes. Tell me about that Assyrian group. Who started it? Who were some of the individuals involved? What activities did you guys partake in? The D.C. Assyrian group has a very, very special place in my heart. And the group has evolved over time. So in 2007, when I was moving to Washington, D.C., Wilfred Betalchas and his wife Nina were running Zinda magazine. My mom didn't know Wilfred or Nina, but she called them and she said, my daughter's coming to Washington, D.C. Can we please meet you for dinner? And that dinner was the start of a really wonderful relationship with Nina, Wilfred, and the group that was in D.C. at the time. So Alda Benjamin and her husband, Danny Yonan, Michael Uesh and his wife, Lundy, there was a lot of great people and some I haven't mentioned and they were very intellectual, fun, lively, warm, inviting. And what did we do there? I mean, sometimes we would go to Lundy and Mike's house and just go to the pool and swim with their kids. We would go to the movies. We would have girls brunches and shop. I mean, pretty typical things. Um, there's the Iraqi embassy in Washington, D.C. And, and um, every year there was this open house at the embassies and all of the people in D.C. could walk through the embassies. And um, some people would set up an Assyrian table in the Iraqi embassy to teach people about Assyrians. So it was a really very special group. And the thing about it is there was 10 or 15 Assyrians in our group. That's really all it takes to feel like you're part of a community. You don't need to be around a thousand people. When you have a good core group, you still feel like you're in a family and you have this huge family. And that was really the, one of the most memorable parts of living in DC were those friendships that I formed. How do you stay connected to your roots? I think practicing speaking Assyrians, one way that I try to stay connected I think it's a critical part of being a Syrian is hanging on to our language. And it's tough because when you see another Assyrian, I think you automatically speak English when really it should be that you're interacting as much as possible in your native language. The other thing is that I speak with my grandparents a lot about about their histories and their stories and even the foods they make because I think there's so much of our culture that's not documented. It's just passed on through oral tradition and it's not just history, it's it's other things like food, like customs, like myths that stay with us and are a way to stay connected to our history. If you could step into my shoes, what would you have asked yourself that I didn't? I think that's a tough question. <laughs> um, it's so hard to, you know, a person's more than just questions. So I, I think you did a good job, unless you have any really burning questions that you want to ask. I like to keep an open forum, uh -huh. like, a, like an active conversation. Uh -huh. yeah. Favorite Assyrian singer? Walter Aziz. Why? In my home, my parents didn't really listen to Assyrian music, so I didn't grow up around around it very much. I somehow came across Walter Aziz and I bought his CD and I used to play it over and over and over again. 
one of the first times that I felt really connected to Assyrians was listening to his music. And I think that's just stuck with me. What are you curious about right now? In general? Yeah. That's such a good question. I think what I'm most curious about now is how successful people become successful. I listen to some podcasts about entrepreneurs because to me it's so interesting that one person's idea can become a huge company. You know, it's one thought in your mind that can change the world. And I really wonder about how that person thought of what they thought of and how is it that they thought, I'm going to do this. I'm going to put my money and time and devote it and take this risk and grow this thing. How does somebody have the confidence to do that? How does somebody find the time to do that? And and how do they feel once they accomplish that? What's the name of the podcast? Skimmed from the Couch. What's your biggest failure and what did you learn from it? So not to sound contrived, but I don't think I've had a failure as of yet. Thank God. There's plenty of time for me to have one though, I'm sure. I do think that in life there are things you can control and things that you can't control. For the things that are in your control, I work very, very hard to make sure that I have the desired outcome. So whether it's, you know, skipping a weekend trip to study for an exam or staying up late to prep for an interview, I will do everything in my power to make sure I get what I want. And then there are things that are not in your control. And for those, I sort of try to embody this philosophy called amor fati, meaning love your fate. Something happens, you didn't want it to happen, but you accept it, you learn from it, and you move on. Easier said than done, but I I think that people who are resilient try to keep this positive attitude. Mindset. Mindset. I want to go back to dermatology. Okay. Are there instances where you give bad news to patients and how do you present that bad news? So yes, there are. I diagnose melanoma, which is a life-threatening skin cancer. It does have the potential to spread to other parts of the body and kill a person. It's a very scary diagnosis to give or to receive. And a lot of my melanoma patients are young. They're in their 20s and 30s. I also tend to uh, have to diagnose lymphomas of the skin from time to time. So there are some skin rashes that are actually lymphomas, a, a type of lymphoma. So the way I approach that is I usually set the stage when I'm doing a biopsy. I will say I'm very concerned about this mole I'm taking off. I worry that it could be a melanoma. The reason I do that is because I think that a person needs time to digest that. And when you tell them before the biopsy, you're basically explaining why you're removing something, why they need the biopsy. It gives them time to go and research the diagnosis. And then when you call them, when you get the biopsy results back, it's not a huge shock. They've done reading and they're able to ask the questions they need to ask. Whereas if you do it another way, meaning you do the biopsy, you say, I'm not so worried about this. You take the biopsy and you call them with their results over the phone. It's a huge, huge shock to people. So I like to prep them that way a little bit. 
I do like to bring people into the office to give them the diagnosis face to face. A lot of times that's hard because their schedules don't allow for it. What's what's helpful about that dynamic when you bring them face to face? They feel connected, meaning that they can see my sympathetic look. I know that they're suffering based on their body language and their signals. So it, there's just more of, I think they feel more of a support when it's face to face. Plus, I like to use diagrams and charts to talk about what the next steps are. And so that's very helpful for patients to be able to visualize what's going on in their skin and what the staging is and what next steps are when you have props that you can use in the office. So you got to go slow. This is a, it's a shock to them. They don't know what questions to ask. They miss half of what you're telling them. So you got to go slow explain things, take pauses, let them ask questions. I usually will have pamphlets of information to give them so they have something that I know has accurate information that they can read about at home because Google's filled with misinformation. And then I tell them, please feel free to call me and I'm available for them by email or telephone um, when they go home and do more research. Earlier, you told the story about the gentleman in the elevator who was very well dressed. Yes. And he turned around to tell you to study Durham. Did you ever find out who he was? Never, ever found out who he was and never saw him again. But I do feel thankful for having met him. And I do sometimes feel it was almost a supernatural experience. Do you remember him? Like like how he looked? I do. He was very good looking, uh, Hispanic, dark hair very sharply dressed, medium build, and a confident person. O'Hara, we have listeners from all over the world. If you had one thing to say to them, what would it be? Well, I would say two things. I would say, if it is to be, it's up to me. So if you want to do something, do it, because it's never going to get done otherwise. And remember that you have a community of Assyrians all around the world who have connections, power, influence, advice. And I think the beauty of our culture is we are always so open and willing to help each other. And so reach out to those connections and use them to your advantage because it if one of us succeeds, I think all of us succeed. Thanks for listening. We produce new episodes every Tuesday. So if you love what you hear, subscribe to us wherever you're listening to this and we'll see you next week.